Amen. Thank you, Phil. Worship team, appreciate your help and leadership this morning. Good morning, everyone. How are you today? Welcome. Anybody bring an extra blanket this morning? I, uh, we kind of figured with the, the wind chills and the cold weather, there'd be a few cars that probably wouldn't start, uh, and maybe some other people that stayed home just so they could bundle up in their recliner under some blankets with their slippers on, and if you brought those this morning, we're totally fine with that too, but uh, glad you're here with us. My name's Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to connect with you. I'll try to make my way out to the lobby afterwards. Uh, stop by and say hi, but uh, like Ben said, our lead pastor, uh, Pastor Don, PD, as we affectionately call him, uh, is at Camp Barakel. Camp Barakel um, is a Christian camp that uh, we as a church have partnered with. Uh, I've been here over 10 years, and uh, Camp Barakel has been a part of that for long before I came. Uh, but PD uh, has been speaking at Barakel for a number of years, too. So this, the camp's been shut down uh, with all the COVID restrictions uh, and things going on. So this is actually their first week uh, being open, uh, first weekend again. So it's great for them to have PD there that's a, a Barakel uh, alum, so to speak, or a Barakel pro who's been there. Uh, so they can kind of be guinea pigs this weekend, see how things are going. Because next weekend, like Ben said, uh, our teams are supposed to be going. So they're working out some of the kinks, trying to figure that out uh, this weekend. Uh, and then they'll be, our, our teams will be heading up there next weekend as well. So continue to pray for them. They'll be wrapping up. Uh, and be praying for our teens throughout the week, if you would, as everybody wants to go, uh, but also wants to stay healthy and trying to figure all those things out. Uh, but uh, just a quick reminder, if you guys like to take notes uh, as, you, uh, as we work through the message, you can do that in our church app. Uh, so I encourage you to do that. If you're a, a paper person, there's still some printouts on the back table, too. You can grab that. also encourage you, if you didn't grab your communion elements, to slip up. Uh, slip towards the back and grab those at some point because we'll be celebrating communion at the end of the message uh, today as well. So we have been in the middle of this series, Come Lord Jesus, and so it's the last series in the Gospel Project. If you haven't been around Oakwood for the last, I don't know, four or five years, we've been going through the Gospel Project where we're kind of taking a big picture view from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the end, and Petey's actually going to do a series on Revelation after this one uh, to kind of wrap it up, not following what the Gospel Project laid out, but getting a little deeper into the book of of Revelation, uh, but the Gospel Project is kind of in a big picture view, and we're in the very kind of final stretch uh, as we look at that. For the last four weeks, PD has been preaching through Paul and his ministry uh, as he was arrested for proclaiming Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, and he's done this journey towards Rome and all that God's uh, been doing uh, while he's in chains on his way up towards Rome. We'll refer back to some of that. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at, at the book of Colossians, which is a letter uh, that Paul wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome. And so if you have a Bible or a, a device, I encourage you to, to get that out and get that ready. Uh, Colossians 1 and 2 is where we're spending most of our time uh, looking at the big picture message that Paul has there. But before we jump into that, I wanted to just talk about one of those kind of principles and truisms in life that kind of sets us up for what we're going to talk about today. And that's the fact that, it's, you know, it's really not so much about how you start the things, but how you finish. You guys feel that's a general truth? It's not so much how you start with things, but how you finish. That's always better to start well too, right? But, but it's really important how you finish. And so that's true in a lot of different areas. One area is, is sports. Any golf fans out there? A few of you? A few of you? That's all right. Bear with me. If you're not a golf fan, I'll walk through. Who, who's that up on the screen? Anybody know? Phil. 
the lovable lefty, Phil Mickelson, uh, one of the most um, successful golfers on the PGA Tour over the last number of years. I think he's won about 45 or so tournaments uh, throughout his career. Uh, and there's four major tournaments uh, every year in, in golf, if you, if you don't follow along. And he's won every single one of those at some point or another, except for the U.S. Open where he has come in second place, I believe six. I may have lost count. There may be, maybe there's been more since then. If I'm counting right, I think he's been second place at the U.S. Open six times. He was in position in 2006 at Wingfoot, of uh, course, in New York, uh, and a lead by two strokes, I think, going into the final round. Came up to the 18th hole, which is the final hole of the round, with a one-stroke lead. All he had to do was make par and he was going to win his first U.S. Open. I think he had finished second three times already at this stage in his career at the U.S. Open. So off to a great start in prime position. All he's got to do, a couple easy shots, get on the green, two putt for par, and he's done. He's got his first U.S. Open championship. Well, how do you think it went uh, as he stepped up to the 18th tee? Does that look like he had a good drive uh, there? So... Phil had only hit, I think, two or three fairways, which means he'd only hit the ball where you're supposed to off the tee a couple of times uh, that day. He had no business pulling out his driver. He should have taken something, a much more conservative shot, just placed it in the middle of the fairway and, and moved on. But he pulled out his driver, and he hits it, and he's not real pleased with where it went. It ended up careening off of like a big exhibitor's tent on the left side. If that wasn't there, it would probably been all the way over in a different fairway, which might have worked out better for him. Uh, in the long run, but it hits this tent, bounces down into like the, where the gallery of people is, so it's laying in a decent spot as far as it wasn't buried at least, but it's trampled down, rough area, people have been walking there all week, uh, and he's got this big tree between him and the green, so he gets up there, and he's got to hit the second shot, ideally he needs to put a second shot on the green so he can take two putts to get in the hole and still win, right, so he wants to hit this heroic recovery shot, uh, and he tries to, and he's going to hit this shot that's going to sweep around the tree and up onto the green, right? Well, it hits the tree, and it goes maybe 30 yards. Just I don't know exactly how far, but not very much farther than where he was. And he's about in the same position, just a little bit closer. Uh, so now he's got to get it on the green and put it in and w with one putt to be able to, to salvage this and finish well and win this championship, right? So he hits his 8-iron, gets it up over the tr tree, but it lands in a greenside bunker. Now he's got this kind of buried plugged lie in the sand trap next to the bunker. And he's got to hit that from there into the hole to win this tournament outright. Best, the, the, the next best case would he get it up there and be able to put it in, get a five, and then he would tie with the leader in the clubhouse and be able to go into playoffs, still have a chance at salvaging this win. Well, it doesn't go that way for Phil. He hits it out of the sand trap, rolls across the green into the, uh, off the side of the green on the other side, if he chips that in, he can still maybe salvage that, that playoff and still win, but it doesn't. It scoots past the hole. He taps in for a double bogey six, and this is where he, what he looks like uh, on the green as he does not finish well and has his fourth second place finish at the U.S. Open. And he was dejected. Uh, I love the quote from him. I'm still in shock that I did that. I can't believe I did that. I am such an idiot. That was a quote from him right after that round. It, it, you know, it's great to start well and be in position, but it's so frustrating when you don't finish well, no matter how well you start. Uh, maybe you're not a, a golf fan or a sports fan, but that truism is, is true in a lot of different things, whether it's games or life. Any Survivor fans out there? 
truthfully, I didn't even know this show was still on the air until like two months ago. My kids started watching it. I've got four teenagers at home, and they're like streaming Survivor, and I guess there's more seasons still to come, 20 years or so going. Survivor, you could start really well. You could win from the beginning every immunity challenge and not be able to get voted off, right? And start well, control your own destiny. Until the very end, if they don't vote for you as one of the final few, you're still not going to win. You're not going to finish well. You're not going to win that million dollars, right? And and that's illustrated really well because my son likes it so much, he bought uh, a board game with Survivor. We've been playing that, right, at home. And so me, as, as the dad, I could win every immunity in those early rounds of Survivor, but how many of you guys think I have a chance of finishing well and winning when it comes down to the family voting for me or someone else in my family to win? doesn't matter who, just anyone else in the family. It's not going to go well for me. The only way I'm ever going to win that is if there's like this pity party and they all just agree together, all right, dad's lost so many times, let's just give him one. And then it's not even going to feel good because I know I'm only winning because of their pity, right? So wouldn't matter how good I started in that game, it's not going to end well for me. I'm not going to finish well. And again, that's the same in many areas of life. School, you start well, but if you don't finish well, it's not going to be good. Career, same thing. Marriage, relationship. Nobody goes into a marriage thinking it's, not, it's going to end in divorce and end in disaster, disconnectedness. That's not the plan. But it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Uh, that's important. And then when it comes to our faith, That's especially important as well. And as we head towards looking at Colossians today uh, and looking into this, I think that's what Paul was concerned about. So Paul actually didn't start the church at Colossae, uh, the Colossian church. Uh, A guy named Epaphras did. And so while Paul was imprisoned in Rome, I think PD uh, showed you guys this map uh, last week or the week before. So this is Paul's journey when he's in prison. He's boarded a ship and they're shipping him off to Rome uh, where he can uh, face trial and all those types of things there, eventually is, is killed. So Paul's over here in Rome, uh, in prison. He's went through the journey that PD's preached through the last four weeks, uh, telling us about it. And while he's there in Rome, Epaphras comes and visits him and tells him about what's going on in the church at Colossae. Now, Coloss- Colossae is not on this map. You see Laodicea here, which is mentioned in the book of Colossians. It's right in that general area uh, where this church started. That's modern-day Turkey. Colossians is over here, Paul's there, Epaphras comes and visits to him, and and, uh, Epaphras has helped start this church and a few others in that area, and he tells Paul about uh, what's going on there at the church. And Paul was uh, both excited and encouraged and concerned at the same time, because he heard about their faith in Christ and their love and, and things that had started well, but then he also heard of what was happening, and he was concerned that they weren't going to finish well and continue well in the faith, because there were teachers coming in threatening the message of the gospel and taking them away from the simplicity of following Jesus. And so we'll talk through some of that as we get into it today. Uh, But Paul uh, was concerned, so he wrote this letter uh, to send back to them. And in Colossians 1 and 2, I think this is is kind of the big idea that we're going to see as we walk through it today. Christ is supreme and sufficient. He must remain at the center Christ is supreme and sufficient, and he must remain at the center. We're going to unpack that, but I think that's where Paul's going to go. Hopefully you'll see that from God's word as we walk through it today. Let me pray, uh, and then we'll turn to uh, Colossians 1 and 2. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for Paul and his example for us. Uh, Thank you for uh, the opportunity to come together uh, to learn from you. And we pray right now you just help us to to put aside anything else that might be on our hearts and minds, uh, lunch, football games, whatever else it is, Lord, that we just focus in 
on you and hear from you and what you'd have for us from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> that wasn't the hope of that drink. <coughs> supposed to clear things out there. Let's try that again. All right. So Colossians 1 and 2, and we're not going to read through all of it, but we're going to read through a lot of it in different chunks today uh, as we get into it. But to start with, like I said, Paul was encouraged uh, and concerned, but it really starts the letter in verses 1 through 14, just with all the encouragement of the good news he had heard about the Colossian church. I'll hit a few passages there. Uh, 1, 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. You have already heard about in the word of truth. Uh, so he's excited. They, they've come to know the gospel and the good news of Jesus, and they've responded, and they've started well in this journey of faith. And then pick it up in verse 9. It says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray, that, uh, pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all power according to his might so that you may have great endurance and patience uh, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in his inheritance of the saints uh, in the kingdom of light. And so he's excited for them, he's giving thanks for them, and he's praying for their ongoing growth and, in, in their relationship. And he's going to talk about that more as we get into the other sections there. Uh, so he's encouraged, but he's also concerned because uh, this group of people had come in and really the, the big... The uh, thing that they were teaching was Gnosticism. That's a, a word that we don't think a whole lot about now. We'll talk about it uh, a little bit more. But essentially challenging and, and undermining the deity of Christ. That They were saying that Jesus was not God, uh, which completely flies in the face of what we believe as, as Christians. And Paul's going to address that in this letter. Uh, and then they were also kind of mixing all these different spiritual beliefs and practices together, uh, similar to what we would uh, see in our culture with pluralism, and people just kind of want to pick and choose what they want uh, of different religions, beliefs, and practices, and mix it in with Jesus, and it doesn't matter, uh, but it does. And Paul's concerned with what he's hearing and with what he's seeing, and so he writes uh, this letter and, and addresses that in these first couple of chapters. But the first thing uh, that we're going to unpack, like we said from the big idea, is that Christ is supreme. That idea is very clear as we get into uh, verses 15 uh, through 19. So we'll read that together and we'll talk through it a bit. It says this, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He, he is the bo- head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from the, among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. We'll stop there for a second. Christ is supreme. And this passage lays that out in a, in a very condensed and powerful way, talking about who he is. And that's why he is supreme. It's because of who he is. 
And uh, my, my family, in 2019, we chose the book of Colossians to kind of do our family Bible study that summer. And one of the things that we did as we went through this, we were trying to teach them just some basic Bible study methods. And an easy one when it comes to just observing what's in God's Word is to make lists. And this is a great passage where you just want to go through and list because we just read five or six verses, but it lists a ton of things. And I'm not going to hit all of them. It lists a ton of things describing who Jesus is. Let's take a quick look at a few of them. Is the image of the invisible God in verse 15. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, first of all, uh, you think about all that has led up to this point. You think about the Israelites. You know, they're not supposed to be any other gods, right? They're not supposed to fashion any idols or any graven images, right? Because there is nothing that can, can picture God, right? It's always going to fall short. It's not going to be who God is. We're, we know from the Old Testament that we can't see God face to face. We'll die. We would just be so overwhelmed by his glory. We can't see him face to face. There is nothing and no one that can be the image of God except for Jesus. So we, we say, oh, he's the image of the invisible God. Yeah, no, that's significant. He is the image of God for us. God in the flesh. For us to see and know. And at one point, Philip was, was asking Jesus, Jesus, just show us the Father so we can know him. He's like, you don't know what you're asking for. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and that's enough. Jesus is the image, the exact likeness and being of God so that we can know him and see him in the flesh. That's a huge thing. He's the creator of all things. And we say uh, in here in, in verse 16, uh, by him... All things were created. And really, it's, uh, the word is in him, all things were created. Uh, and then later, created, all things were created by him and for him. So three prepositions, in him and through him and for him, all things were created. Nothing was created except by him. So we've got the perfect image and representation of God for us to see in the flesh. We've got him as the creator, all-powerful creator. Nothing exists apart from him. This is just two statements of who Jesus is and why that is significant, right? And you keep going on. Not only did he create all things, he sustains all things. He holds all things in his hands. Nothing happens. Nothing holds together without him. Nothing falls apart without him. He's the sustainer of all things. And he's the head of the, the church, which is the new creation, the new family of God uh, that he has made at this point. And there's plenty of others that we're not hitting in here. And he's the, full, the fullness of God dwells in him. And that's that idea of he is fully God. The deity of God dwells in him. We see that again in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, uh, which we'll read here in a little bit. That's just a small picture. Maybe half of what those few verses say about who Jesus is. And it's significant. He's the image of God. He's the creator of all things. He holds all things together. We have to understand that he is supreme. There's nothing else that you can mix in there with him that matters. He's supreme. And that statement that we see in there, and you see all throughout the book of Colossians, you know, Christ is talked about over and over. In Christ is talked about over and over. The word all or everything shows up over and over because everything is in him, everything's through him, everything's for him. That concept is all throughout this letter. And Paul's trying to point us back to that. He is central because he is supreme. And then really, ultimately, that answers kind of those, some of those existential 
uh, questions that we may have in life. You know, who am I? Why am I here? God created us to know him, to live with him, to walk with him. That, that's the end-all, be-all of, of those existential questions, and he wants that deeply for us to know him and walk and live with him. Second thing we're going to walk through here briefly is Christ is sufficient. So not only is Christ supreme, but this passage makes it clear that Christ is sufficient. I'll pick it back up in verse 19 again because we kind of left there mid-thought, uh, but we're really looking at 20 uh, through 23 here. 19 says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you to Christ's physical body, or by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So there at the end, we start to get that first hint of, of why Paul's writing. He's concerned. You know, he wants to make sure they're continuing to remain true to the gospel and who Jesus is. So Christ is supreme because of who he is. And we just took a quick glimpse at that. Christ is sufficient because of what he has done. And again, there's another long list in just three or four verses here, and we'll hit a few of those real quick. He reconciled all things to himself. Reconciling means he made right. Things got messed up. Relationships got broken. Sin got in the way. He made things right. He reconciled all things. He made peace by shedding uh, his blood on the cross. Anybody longing for peace today in your life? Ultimately, it's a done deal. If you have Jesus, if you have a relationship with Jesus, no matter what's going on and the lack of peace in this world, we have peace. It's been done because of his blood shed on our behalf. And later on, we'll get into chapter 2, and there's a bunch more things that identify what he has done. He's given us brand new life. He's forgiven our sins. He's canceled our debt. And he triumphed over all powers and authorities. Anybody that's been at some point in their life under what felt like a mountain of debt? I've been there before. Not a fun place to be financially. Not a fun place to be, right? You just, you just feel trapped. You feel like there's never going to be a way out. Ultimately, whether you're in that place when it comes to finances or not, have been in that place when it comes to finances, we all have a debt because of our sin in our lives. And it's a debt that could never be paid by us, ever. But it's been canceled, forgiven. If you're feeling that now, if you're living under this weight of debt, how would it feel to have that debt completely canceled? Or if that you've been there in the past, if that debt would have just been wiped clean in one day, the joy, the freedom, the relief that, that you'd experience, that's what happens with us and has happened with us if we have Christ in our lives. He's canceled the debt. He's triumphed over all powers and authorities. That's just a snapshot uh, that Paul is reminding he is sufficient because of what he has done. And I like the, the little uh, contrast that he puts in there in this passage that we just read. We were, before Christ, we were alienated from God and hostile to God. Alienated, completely separated 
from him and hostile to him. There's plenty of people in our world that are living that way today. I hope that's not you. It doesn't have to be. If it is, we'll talk about that. Apart from Christ, we are alienated from God and we are hostile to God. But in Christ, we are reconciled. We're made right. That relationship is restored. We're brought back into fellowship with him. And now we're holy. What is it saying there? We're holy without blemish or ac- and free from accusation. Anybody feel like they're without blemish and free from accusation today? I don't feel that way, but if we are in Christ, the truth of God's word is we are. The debt's been paid. We are without spot or blemish. We've been made holy because of what he has done. It's not about what we need to do to be good enough. It's about what he has already done for us. Christ is sufficient, and Paul wanted to make sure that they knew this. Paul certainly knew this, and I think that's a, a large part of why uh, you know, we see that powerful ministry that he's a part of, uh, that PD's been teaching through over the last weeks and months. So we'll pick that up a little bit as we continue. Paul just talked about that. Uh, he says there in verse 23, um, This is the gospel that you heard uh, that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. In 124, we'll keep moving here. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission of God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all this energy, which is so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea for all, and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have uh, the full riches of a complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. And the delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith uh, in Christ is. I'm going to pick up the next few verses here in a minute. But so Paul has really just been talking about his ministry, you know, over the last 10 or 12 verses. Here's a guy, and if you remember Paul and his story, where where do we first kind of pick up the story of Paul in in the uh, book of Acts? Is he this passionate proclaimer of the gospel? No, he's a passionate persecutor. He's trying to snuff out and kill people who are following, of Jesus, following Jesus. He thinks it's, it's a, a fluke, and he's trying to shut it down because it's threatening the, the Jewish beliefs and system that was there. So Paul, when we first pick up the story of Paul, that's where he's coming from. He's trying to shut it down. He's, I'm sure he laughed and mocked, and he tried to kill and stood by as people were killed uh, for believing in and proclaiming Jesus. But somewhere along the line, Paul understood the two things that we just talked about. He had the revelation where Christ spoke to him, and he understood that Christ is supreme and that Christ's work is sufficient. 
and it changed Paul's life. So he went from a persecutor and a mocker and a murderer to someone who was willing to give his own life for the sake of the gospel. And that's what we've been seeing with Paul over the last number of weeks as we preach through those passages. Someone who is literally in chains, on a boat, about to drown, shipwrecked on an island. And what's he doing in the midst of all that? Woe is me, I'm on a boat, I'm chained up, I'm in prison because I'm trying to be faithful. Woe is me. He's just telling people about Jesus the whole way. That's all he's continuing to do is tell people about Jesus and the hope that we have in him. That's all he cares about because he knows who Jesus is and what he's done and that that changes everything. And so I think Paul um, is just a powerful picture of the changed life that should come out of understanding those two key truths that he's writing about here. He's not just waxing philosophical on some truths. He's living out things that he's teaching. And then we get to this, these next few verses, uh, verses 6 and 7 in chapter 2. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanks, uh, thankfulness. And we're going to talk about what, what he goes from there. But he's basically telling them, just as you received Christ, continue, remain in him. And so that's what Paul's, Paul's worried about. They started well, but he wants to make sure they're going to continue to walk in Christ and know who he is and be faithful to the gospel in their own lives and as they proclaim that to others as well. And so Paul's concern is that uh, they understand that Christ is supreme, that he's sufficient, and that he must remain at the center of everything, of their lives, of their message, of their worship, of their practice, everything. And so he walks through, you know, just as you received Christ as Lord, uh, so he's assuming that, that they, what he's heard is they've started well, they've received Christ as Lord, uh, not as a good philosophical teacher. Lots of people think, you know, Jesus teaches good things. We love that he says to love one another, and there's some good things, but let's, let's hold on to all those good things about Jesus and what he teaches of us, right? That's not all who Jesus claims to be. That's not what the, the scriptures proclaim Jesus to be. He is a good teacher, but he is God himself, the creator, the sustainer. He's sovereign over all. We must receive Christ as Savior and Lord. And, and that's what the, the Colossians did. That's what's important for us. And that's where it starts. That's where we begin. We understand those two truths. God sent Jesus in the world. He is supreme because he is God. He created me. He wants to know me. He wants a relationship with me. This guy who created all the stars in the heavens and placed them himself, he created me. He numbered the hairs of my head. He cares about me and you. That's an amazing thing when we understand that. He's sovereign, creator, all-powerful, but he loves you. And he loves me. And he wants that relationship with us. And we've rebelled from that. We've pushed back from that. But when we understand that, when we, when we see the full extent of his love and what he's done on the cross, shedding his blood, paying that price, that debt that we can never pay, when we understand who he is, what he's done, we, our only response is we can reject him, and plenty of people do because they want to continue to be the Lord of their own lives. But Jesus is the sovereign Lord. No matter how we respond, that's not going to change. That's the truth. And our, our best response is to come back to him, receive him as Lord. And then Paul's uh, concern from there is that we continue. 
And the, the word picture, he says, is being rooted in Christ, continuing to walk closely with him. That's one of the first commands that he puts out uh, in the book of Colossians, that we're continuing to walk with him. Uh, and you think of, you know, we've done different uh, analogies and pictures before, you know, with plants and trees in terms of the importance of being rooted. And if, if we plant a plant in some really shallow dirt with rocky soil, it might spring up and look beautiful for a little while, right? Be off to a good start. But what's going to happen to it? You know, it's not going to be able to continue because it's not going to get its roots down deep in the nourishing soil and be able to be strong and fruitful. And that's why you see the whole, the acorn uh, being our kind of image because the seed of the gospel needs to be planted within it. It starts to sprout and grow, but we want to see those roots grow down deep in each of our lives so we're walking in Jesus, continuing in him, and we're being nourished and built up and growing and strengthened. And then what are we doing? We're dropping little acorns along the way too. We're, we're, we are being fruitful and multiplying by making disciples and helping other people know what we've come to know, that Jesus is supreme, that he's sufficient, that he loves us. And that's what Paul is concerned about here. They continue to be faithful to the gospel, continue to walk closely with Christ and proclaim the truth of the gospel. So he wants to see them continuing to grow uh, first and foremost. But then he also wants to make sure that they're being on guard. And that's what we're going to talk about as we get into the next uh, couple sections uh, of Scripture. Because he was encouraged by their good start, but he sees some major warning signs of things that could easily shipwreck their faith. Uh, and he wants to address some of those. And we'll have to think about what that means for us uh, in our lives as well. So he talks about a couple of things. Um, I've put them in the notes if you're following along there. Uh, the first one we'll look at is in uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I've labeled it as poly polytheism. That's a little more easier for us to understand. We'll talk about that. But, but it's the idea of worldly philosophies and spiritual practices. Let's see what he says uh, in verses 8 through 15 in chapter 2. He says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done uh, by the hands of man, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through the, your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code uh, with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. And so in, in verses 9 you know, through 15 there, he's kind of going back and re reviewing some of the things we just talked about uh, from chapter 1 of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But his, his exhortation there, the command, uh, the first command in this chapter was, you know, continue to walk with him. That, that was the first command. In chapter, verse 8, we see the second one. See to it. Basically, it's watch out, is what he's saying. Blepo is the Greek word. Watch out that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. He says that, de uh, where it says that depend on human tradition and basic principles of this world rather than on 
Christ. Christ is supreme. Christ is sufficient. Christ must remain at the center. All these other things, these other religious systems that the world is trying to sell us on and sell as compatible with the Christian faith or complementary to the Christian faith, all those types of things, we've got to watch out for those things because they detract from who Christ is. If Christ is God and creator, if we are separated from God because of our sin and the only way that can be paid for is through his death and sacrifice on the cross, nothing else matters. All the other stuff is just worldly philosophies, traditions, practices. And if we get distracted by those things, it's going to take us away from keeping Christ at the center. That's what Paul's worried about and concerned about for them. So polytheism, for them, Gnosticism, this idea, and again, the, one of the hard things with the Gospel Project is we're doing these kind of big picture messages, so we can certainly go through in a lot more detail. Uh, I don't know if you picked up uh, earlier, we were talking about, Paul was talking about the mystery of the Gospel, the mystery of the Gospel, the mystery, he said it three or four times, that's now been revealed. And he kept pointing back to what? What was the mystery that was revealed? Jesus. That's all it is. It's Christ. And he's saying that over and over. Christ is the central. Christ is the mystery. They had this Gnosticism belief that there was some secret knowledge that only certain people could understand. Bull. Not true. There's one mystery that's been revealed. It's Christ. It's Jesus. Nothing else matters. And Paul's trying to point them back to that in different ways over and over and over uh, throughout this book. So polytheism, those worldly practices and um, spiritual practices and philosophies, you've got to watch out for. Uh, he talks about legalism a little bit too in uh, verses 16 through 23. We'll read that quickly and we'll just start to draw some conclusions here. <clears throat> Verse 16, Therefore, another command, do not, let, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, uh, or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, but the reality, however, is found in Christ. He's warning about all these other things that just take us away from centrality, supremacy, and sufficiency of Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and, he, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations have, uh, indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So human regulations, rules, and practices, we, we come up with all kinds of those things. Does that mean that God doesn't care about holy living? No, he does. But we do that out of the understanding of who he is and what he's done for us. We want to live our lives in him and for him and for his glory. So we want to live healthy, holy lives. It's not about, again, what we do. It's about what he's done and living in response uh, to that. So Paul makes it pretty clear. Those, those couple verses, if you just look at chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by hollow, deceptive philosophies, uh, which depend on human tradition rather than on Christ. And then again, um, you know, in verse 16, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. 
uh, with regard to religious festivals or new moon celebrations. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. But the reality, however, is found in Christ. He's just continually trying to debunk all the, the fluff and the things that detract from who Christ is and what he's done and point us back to him. And so he tells us we've got to continue to grow. It's not just about starting well. We've got to continue to make sure we're getting our roots down deep and growing in our faith, growing in our knowledge of him, walking in him. Uh, And then we've got to be on guard because there's all kinds of things that are threatening to come in and undermine our faith and our relationship with God. And we may think, ah, polytheism, legalism, those things don't bother me. Polytheism, for them, they had all kinds of temples and, and statues and idols and things like that, right? We probably don't deal with any of that kind of stuff. They had... Uh, let me see a list of, of some of the ones that they had uh, in their area. So they had statues and temples for Aphrodite, right? You guys don't have a statue or temple for Aphrodite that you're worshiping around your house or around town somewhere, right? Mm, or Apollo, Ares, Athena, Dimitris, any of these people? No, huh? All right, well, what, what did Aphrodite, what, what was she the goddess of? Do you guys remember? Love, sensuality, sex. Is our world... Worship those things? Do those things threaten to undo people's relationship with God at times? Because they take central center stage? Absolutely. Apollo was the god of music, arts, and creativity. Do we exalt and worship those things, maybe, above the creator at times? I think there's things we've got to watch out for. Ares was the god of war and courage. Athena, reason and wisdom. Dionysus was the god of wine, fruitfulness, and parties, right? Does our world worship and long after those types of things? Absolutely. So it doesn't look the same for us as it did back in Colossians, but there's nothing new under the sun. Same issues, different ways of looking at it. We've got to keep Jesus on the center, and we've got to be on guard when it comes to those things. So... Lots more that could be said. Um, I, wanna, I don't have time to go all the way through uh, Colossians 3 and 4. Colossians 1 and 2, and if you know Paul's kind of style of writing, he usually in the early parts of his letter starts with a lot of theological truth. He usually starts with some encouragement, maybe a prayer, and then he spends a chapter or two on some theological truth. And that's no different in Colossians. So we've seen that in chapters 1 and 2. He's kind of putting out a lot of theological truth, and he's having kind of a corrective tone with them a little bit. And then you get into chapters 3 and 4, and it's more the practical. This is what it means for how we should live. The reality is if, if Jesus is supreme, if he's God, he's the creator, uh, and if he is sufficient, if what he's done is enough, then that should change everything for us, just like it did for Paul. It transformed his life, and it should transform ours as well. If we understand those truths and we live in light of those, it should change everything for us. And that's basically what Paul says as he gets into chapter, chapters 3 and 4. And so he gets in and he talks about basically how you know, Christ should change uh, our relationships, our, our relationship with our, with our spouse as a husband and wife, our relationship with our kids, our relationships with people who are above us or below us in life, whether at work, all those types of things. Jesus should change all of it. Nothing should be untouched by the Lordship of Christ in our lives because of who he is and what he's done. And he sums it up, I think, in um, Colossians 3, verse 17. Should come up here. He says this, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And if we look back, and I know we've kind of, and this is fire hose, we're taking big picture looking at stuff, but all over and over, Colossians 1 and 2, everything is in him and through him and for him. 
And if we understand that our life is in him and through him and for him, both our physical life in this world and our spiritual life in eternity is in him and through him and for him, then it leads us towards this, that whatever we do, we want to do in him and through him and for him, for his glory. That's the practical ramifications. And I love uh, Paul's uh, last word, the very end of the, of the letter that he wrote. Uh, Paul was probably having one of his other uh, friends and compatriots you know, write out what he was saying, but he wanted to write the, the closing himself. So he says in 418, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, why is he closed that letter? Remember my chains. Well, what's that matter for anything? Well, look back at what we've just been studying over the last month or so. We look back at who Paul was before Christ. Was he alienated from God, hostile to God? Absolutely. But he came to understand who Jesus was and what he did. He didn't start so well, but he came to understand who Jesus was, what he did. It changed everything for him. And now instead of killing people, he is giving his life. Literally, his head's on the chopping block in Rome. He's about to die for proclaiming Christ as Lord and trying to take as many people with him as he could. But it doesn't matter. Remember my changes and, oh, woe was me. Yeah, I'm suffering here. Send me some bread. What? That's not what he's saying. Remember my change. The gospel of God is worth it. It's the only thing that's worth it. And, and he said that over and over. I'm a servant of the gospel for your sake. So you'll know the mystery, the truth of who God is and what he has done through Christ. And that you'll know him and live in him and walk with him and grow up in him and do the same thing that I'm doing. Helping other people to know the good news of Jesus. And so I think that's Paul's point. Christ is supreme. Christ is sufficient. And he's got to remain the center. If, if he is who he says he is, if he is, if he's done what we know him to have done, it changes everything. And he's got to be the center of our lives. So we've got to continue to grow and be on guard. Those are my two things for you to practically think about. What are you doing to continue to grow and walk and be in Jesus and know that he is in you? The huge blessing no matter what your circumstances. I don't think any of us have circumstances as bad as Paul uh, does when he's writing this letter chained to a wall in a prison. But he's still living with that perspective. So what are you doing to grow? Are you spending time in God's word daily? Do you have other believers that you're fellowshipping with and praying with and praying for and that are praying for you and that can speak into your life and encourage you and, um, and challenge you and those types of things? Are you living that out? Uh, there's opportunities here at the church. It's not about events and services. It's about relationships, walking together with Jesus. And so if you're not uh, experiencing that, there's ways we can help you with that. We have groups available. Uh, we've talked a little bit in the recent uh, days about the um, Disciples Path um, uh, opportunity that we have here, which is really just a mentoring. It's not about the curriculum. It's about the relationship. We have people who uh, just want to come alongside, like Paul did with many of the people that he worked with, come alongside the help them to get that foundation in their faith, understanding who God is, what he's done, and giving them the tools to then be able to go and do that with others. Uh, we've got opportunities like that. So if you're interested in that kind of mentoring and discipleship, we've got men and women available uh, to meet with you and help with that. So what are you doing to continue in Christ? Not just start well, but to continue so that you'll finish well over the course of your life. And what do you need to be on guard against? What's threatening to be take center stage or to take over the lordship of your life because Jesus is the only thing worthy of that but our hearts our flesh and the world around us are, are constantly trying to send things our way 
to get us distracted. So what is it for you? May not be the things that we've talked about today, polytheism, or, um, or it may not be uh, legalism, those types of things, but there's plenty of things from worldliness to entertainment. Uh, PD sent out an email you know, a couple weeks ago talking about just the idea of Christian nationalism, which is, is not even a, a real thing, but there's a big movement of that. Jesus isn't an American. America isn't God's chosen people. All nations, tongues, tribes are loved by God and the gospel's for all of us. It doesn't matter. So we can get detracted and distracted by all kinds of things that even may seem good at times. Christ, Jesus, that's it. The gospel, the good news. We've got to make sure he stays at the center. So what is it that, is, uh, that you've got to be on guard against as you continue in your journey with him? So those are some things just for you to think about. Uh, and I pray that uh, that'll be encouragement to you as we keep moving forward uh, with that same heart that Paul has to, to take the gospel and share it. Because there's all kinds of people that are around us that are living alienated from God and in desperate need to know who he is, what he's done, and understand that they love him. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite Pastor Ben to come up, and we have the opportunity to, to celebrate communion, which really is that picture of who Jesus is and what he did that we get to practice. Let's pray, and then we'll celebrate that together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you for your word. I thank you for Paul and his example and his letters and for all the other people that helped uh, start the church under just immense pressure and persecution, but they knew who you were and what you had done and the, the message that they were entrusted with was crucial for the whole world. Just thank you for their faithfulness present that to preserve that so that we can be sitting here today learning about it and, and challenged to do the same thing, Lord, because you are worthy. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.